0: Ephesians chapter 6 as we continue a series and a study that is talking about the believer's armor. I told you several months ago about a true event that happened back in 1969. There was a series of hijackings that took place in America and this one fellow by the name of Alan Sheffield in February of 69 decided to hijack a plane from Newark to Miami because he wanted to protest the fact that there's not many good things on TV and he wanted them to stop making TV dinners. So he hijacked a plane to get this across. Well, he hijacks the plane, and he was an unlikely type of character. He took a knife and grabbed a stewardess, went up to the cockpit, and said that he had a bomb and all these different things. What happened is, I told you before, that there was another fellow on this plane. His name was Alan Funt. Any of you remember him? There was a program on TV for years that was called... You're on candid camera. And they would create scenarios and then people would be, you know, act it out. And then at the end of people's shock or whatever, then they would show their responses and they would say, yeah, what was the first word? Smile. You're on candid. Well, he's on this flight on family vacation. And after the guy hauled the stewardess to the front, all of a sudden some lady said, Alan Funt's here. We're on candid camera. This is just a hoax. And so everybody there and the passengers, they started partying. And they started, at that time you could get up and do it. They were dancing in the aisles. They were passing the liquor. Alan Funk kept saying, it's not true. It's not true. I'm on vacation. It's not true. And finally, after a period of time in the celebration, when all of a sudden the Cuban jets came and started flying next to the airliner and people saw the jets, then they realized, hey, this is serious. And when they were in Cuba for those 11 hours until they were transferred back, not a single passenger talked to Alan Funt. They were mad at him (laughs) because he didn't tell them the truth. Hey, listen, things like that can happen. There can be all of a sudden some funny things or some real things, and sometimes real things that even even people don't believe when you tell them the truth. Sometimes it happens in church. In church, we tell you something, we warn you, and some people say, ah, it's not true. This is one of those series. This is one of those series that people don't believe. They don't believe what God says in Ephesians chapter 6 when he writes these words and warns them about a real threat that's not make-believe. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand against the wiles of the devil. For you wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto yourself, he says, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. My friend, that whole section has told us that we are in a demonic battle. That we are under attack and some don't believe. Some think it's make-believe. Smile, it's okay. You're under attack. Your ha- family's under attack. Under attack by some creatures that you can't see, but who are very powerful, who are very clever, who are organized, who are, uh, have abilities that are just tremendous. We talked about that. And this passage says that we're supposed to be able to take the shield of faith and other weaponry that we'll be talking about in the weeks ahead and defining. But he's warning us that there's fiery darts being cast at us, fiery javelins, spiritual javelins of attack. Well, the last two weeks we've talked about what some of those attacks are. Before we get into the defense, we've been looking at how we're under attack, the way the attacks can come. And last week we said let's take the example of Jesus Christ where it's recorded in Matthew chapter 4, how Jesus was under attack. And let's study it, and let's see, okay, how does Satan attack the Lord? And if Satan used these weapons against somebody who was like Christ, mature, surely he's using that weapon against some of you who are mature as well. And we read the account in Matthew chapter 4, where it says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him and said, If you be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread, he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The devil. Now, Matthew records this as the second. Luke records this one temptation as the third. But we read in Matthew 4, verse 5. Then the devil takes him up into the holy city and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said unto him, If you be the Son of God, cast yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest at any time you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord our God. Now we've talked about these. We've set up the scene last week. We shared, we pointed out something that if you didn't write it down, you should mark your Bible. That where it says, if you be the Son of God, literally reads, since. Satan knew who he was. Satan understood. And Satan's attack of saying to Jesus after being hungry, it was basically saying to him, you don't deserve this, Jesus. These circumstances... This isn't fair, what God has put you through. You're his son. Surely he would treat you better than this. You have the power. So why don't you use the power to alter your situation? Don't wait on God anymore. Just do and provide for yourself. And Jesus' response is basically saying, no, I'm not going to go after what I want. I'm not going to do what I think when I think. I'm going to rather trust the Lord. But Satan says, do what you do want. Make your self feel happy and Jesus responds with scripture that we need to live by the word of God, that we live by the principles, the promises of the word of God, even if it means we wait, even if it means we don't satisfy our fleshly desires, even if we don't get everything we want at that moment. He says, I'm going to be trusting God. I'm going to wait upon God and let God provide for me, which by the way, God did at the end of the story. Look at verse 11. When it's all done, after Jesus remained faithful, the devil leaves him and behold, the angels came and ministered on Him, God planned, God planned on providing for Jesus, and Jesus wisely said, "I'm going to wait. I'm going to follow God's timing in this." Then he took him up to the top of the temple, one of those roof peaks, one of those ledges that looked down over the temple, over the side of the walls, down into the Kidron Valley, and he says, "Hey, listen, you've been saying that you are the you are the Son of God. You've been saying you want to trust the God. You're going to rely upon Him, and so basically." God's word promised you, and he quotes scripture. Satan used the Bible. He's aware of it. He said, hey, here's what the scripture says about you. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. They shall bear you up. Jesus. God will protect you. God promised that. So if you really want to trust God, trust him by jumping off the edge. And put God to the test. See if God won't provide. See if God won't take care and protect And Jesus' response is very simple, which we just read. Don't tempt the Lord thy God. Jesus knew he shouldn't tempt the Father. Satan, you certainly shouldn't tempt the Father. We shouldn't tempt the Father. And basically he says, hey, it's inappropriate for us to demand God to prove himself to us. It's inappropriate for us to test God to see if he'll keep his word. To put ourselves in scenarios or circumstances that say, hey God, I'm going to see if you really care. That's wrong. It's wrong for us to presume upon God that he will do what he says, even though we're not doing what we're, what we're supposed to, or we're doing what we're not supposed to do, and we're going to just, just rely upon God. Just trust God, even though we don't do our part. We made some, some thoughts about this last week that you and I are not to take God for granted. But it happens. There are individuals who will all of a sudden go out, they will overcharge, they will overspend, they will not be wise in their finances, and then they throw the burden of the pills on God and say, well, God, you said you'd provide. I'm not practicing wisdom. I'm I'm violating scriptures in other areas, but you're going to provide, God. That's what you said. Well, that's wrong. That's tempting the Lord God. It's wrong to assume God is going to answer your prayers when you don't even pray. It's wrong, as we said last week, to assume that God will help your kids to become godly kids even though you don't give them a godly example. That's wrong. It's wrong on our part to say, hey, I'm going to go out and sin, and afterwards I'll confess, and God will remove all the consequences. It's wrong on our part to assume that God will make our life easy just because we show up for worship. It's wrong for us to assume that because we go and work and we give some money to to different charities at times, God's going to make us rich. It's wrong to presume upon God in those ways or in other ways where we take God for granted. It's wrong. And so what we're supposed to be doing is we're supposed to be accurately looking at Scripture, living according to Scripture, living in a way that God can then bless us when it says that he will give us the delight of our hearts if we are doing his will, if we are following him and loving him. And so God's made it very clear. Now we come to the third temptation, as, as uh, Matthew records it. It's in verse 8. Again, the devil takes him up into an exceedingly high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and said unto him, All these things will I give thee if you will bow, fall down and worship me. Satan said to him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall you worship. It's really interesting how this one unfolds. Now, right away, let's make an observation. Let's realize that according to this text, and according to the words of Jesus, Satan does have some authority and power in this world. He does have to, some, the ability to say, Jesus, I will give you the kingdoms. You say, well, does he have that type of control? To a degree, yes. To a degree, he's the God of this world. He's the prince of this air. To a degree, he has a hold at this point. It's going to remain until Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom. And Satan is saying, if you bow down to me, I will give you the kingdom. I will release my hold upon it. And so Jesus, I'm sorry, Satan, is giving Jesus... Something that God has already promised Jesus. And Satan knows it. Satan realizes that in the past, Jesus has been told and been predicted that he is going to rule and reign the entire world. We read that in several different passages, but I highlight two of them where it talks about his is going to be the inheritance to the uttermost parts of the earth, the possession of Jesus Christ. That he will be given dominion, the glory, a kingdom of all people, of all nations. That he will have total control and everlasting dominion. And Satan knows this. Satan knows that God has planned for Jesus that he will one day rule. It's interesting that Satan knows the Word of God. One of our folk pointed out last week that Satan knew, even though it's not recorded, Satan knew what God had told Adam and Eve. And he challenged it. Yea, hath God said? He knew about it. So Satan knows the promises that are there. And basically, what Satan was saying to Jesus, to those, he was saying, since you're the Son of God, and you will one day be given the world to rule, but right now, I've got my hands involved, then why not take it now? I'm going to let you have the world right now. I'm going to let you be in charge, and I won't won't fight at this point if you bow down and worship me. If you acknowledge my authority, if you acknowledge my that I'm a legitimate authority, control of your life, a master, somebody that you would give obeisance to. If you do that, Jesus, then what I will do is I will let you have control without a fight. You don't have to go through this whole three years of ministry. You don't have to go through what God has planned for you, where you will suffer and die and then end up in uh, in the grave for several days. You can avoid all that. You can grab the crown and miss the cross. If you just bow down to me, I'm going to give you a shortcut. I'm going to make life a whole lot easier for you if you don't follow God's plan. If you just do what I want, and my way will be much easier. Does it ever happen this way? That Satan says, hey, listen, it's okay to follow the Lord, but you don't need to do it all the time. You don't need to do it all the time, Jesus. Hey, if you just give me a little bit, I'm going to make life easier for you. All you have to do is just, you just have to lie just once or twice. You don't have to become a chronic liar, but just lie a few times, and I'll make life easier for you. Hey, listen, if, uh, if you just cheat on this one test, it'll be easier for you at school. I'm not saying you're going to cheat. I'm going to want you to cheat every time. Just this once. Just bow down this one time. And you cheat this one time. Hey, um, you don't have to do the hard thing of loving and submitting to your spouse and working at your marriage. You're, you deserve better. So why don't you make life easier and just focus on yourself and do your own thing. And don't follow God's word and, and it'll be easier for you. I won't give you grief. Or what about this? You don't have to obey your mom and dad. That's tough. That's tough. That's difficult, especially when they're not as smart as you are. You don't have to listen to them all the time, and it'll be a whole lot easier for you. How how about this? I'll make Sunday life a whole lot easier for you. You'll have a lot more fun if you don't dedicate yourself as consistently to be in worship services. Or how about this? If you choose a career That doesn't serve God with your whole life. That's okay, by the way. But if God is burdening you for vocational ministry, missions, teaching, pastoring, if God is burdening for you, Satan would have you say, hey, listen, there's an easier path. Take the easier path. Take the path that's different and you'll make more money or you'll make more whatever. You know, you don't need to follow God's plans all the time. Take the easy route. Do your will your way. It'll be a whole lot easier for you. And so many, so many follow and bite and nibble on that whole lure that he puts there. But Jesus said no. Jesus' response was this one. It is written, you shall worship the Lord thy God and him only. He's quoting two different possible texts in the Old Testament. But in both of those, you would look, Jesus added a word to it. Jesus added only to the quotes of the Old Testament, making it very clear, only the Lord God. With the idea all the time, him only, not somebody else, not just temporarily. Not, not the idea of that, on Sundays we serve God, but the rest of the week we don't. Or we serve God every day but Saturday. No. You only serve the Lord and worship Him all the time, 24-7. And Jesus' response, I'm not giving you any credit. I'm not bowing down to you at all, at one iota, never, ever, even if it's the easier route, even if I can get what God is going to give me anyway, by bowing down to you, I can get it quicker, I can get it easier. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I am sold out to honoring and glorifying my Father. He said that multiple times. He said, nothing of myself. It's all of what the Father wants. I don't come here to do my own will. I came to do the Father's will. I came down to do the will of him that sent me. And Jesus remained loyal to that. And wouldn't budge a single inch. What lessons do we learn? What do we draw from it? We know seeking good things the wrong way is still wrong. In, in ethics, it's called, you know, the ends justifies the means. And we say that's not true. That's not true biblically. Jesus made that very clear. What do we learn from this? We learn that allowing anything or anyone, any part of attention that God deserves, even for a little while, even for just one bow, is wrong. God is to get the honor, the glory. He is to be the object of whom we give our worship. Here in our work time, whether we eat or drink or whatsoever you do, we are to do all to the glory of God. Not ourselves. Not of our, of our country. Not of our kids. We're to be giving God the glory and exalting Him. We learn this. There are no shortcuts in God's planned will. There aren't any. I don't mean to be miserable about it, but I do know that God's will involves difficulties for all of us. It's just a part of our our makeup and the plan. Because God has desired that every... He has decreed that every one of us who is saved, that we become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And to make us more like Christ... He's got to use trials. He's got to use difficulties. He's got to chip away on that that marble piece of, of granite that he's working with, us. He's got to mold the clay. And sometimes it's not easy, though we want it to be easy. We want no difficulties. We want no challenges. But he makes it clear there's no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts to raising godly kids. Oh, I wish there were. Wouldn't it be nice to just birth them, put them in a room, and bring them out 21 years later? There are no shortcuts. There's the training, there's the the disciplinings, there's the directing, there's tremendous amount of investment to raise godly kids. There is no easy shortcut to having a good marriage. Oh no, what we did is we just said, I take you, I take you, and we never have any problems whatsoever, ever, ever, ever. And we are constantly honeymooning for the last... 70-some years. That's not the way life works. Life doesn't say that, hey, there's a shortcut of being an ethical worker, to being a worker that has a good testimony. There is no shortcut. you got to work. you got to work the hours that you're told. And while you're there, not just be there for the hours, but work. Be honest. Be consistent. Satan would say, take a shortcut. There are no shortcuts in life in, in honoring the Lord. And just because it's easy and comfortable doesn't mean it's God's will. Don't get caught up in that health and wealth gospel that says that God wants you to be happy all the time and God wants you to have no problems. That's a lie from Satan. That is not truth of scripture. So we know that that's exactly what what Satan has said. And so we need to beware of the temptation to do God's will our way. We need to beware of this temptation to do your will your way. We need to be be careful of the temptation to take the easy way to serve God. You know how this goes? That Satan puts up, you can serve God, but don't work too hard in the church. And Satan's response is, after Jesus tells him, you know, no, Satan leaves. Satan leaves and God ministers. What does that tell us? That God sent the angels to minister? What what do we learn from that? God cared for Jesus. We know that God provided his needs. God cares for you. God will provide your needs. And God will strengthen you as you consistently serve him the way he wants you to serve. But there's another text that I want to share with you because I think this is so important. Matthew said he left him. Satan left. But when Luke records it, look at the difference. And when the devil had ended the temptation, he departed, but he adds this, for a season. What's that mean? What does that tell you? He's he's back. He's back. He came back to Jesus. Don't be mistaken that the temptations occurred just in the very first few weeks of his ministry and never again. That's not true. Jesus had to deal with Satan again. Satan was coming back, and he was going to give him a challenge. It is very interesting to me that when he gives another recorded challenge, it is very, very similar to the third temptation. Matthew 16. Please join me there. This text is where we spend the rest of our time. In Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, the challenge is just, just so similar to what we just looked at in chapter four. What happens is, Jesus is with his disciples. They are ministering at a time that's in the latter part of his ministry, and the parallel account says he walked no more in Jewry, okay, because the Jews sought to kill him. What that means is he didn't go down into the southern part of Judea, where, into Judea, the southern part of, uh, of the nation where Jerusalem was. He didn't go there anymore, because the Jews had put out a warrant for his arrest. And so Jesus is staying in the northern region of Galilee for these next few months. instead he's staying in Galilee, he has a low profile publicly. He isn't doing a whole lot of, he doesn't avoid it, but he isn't doing a whole lot of public ministry. The bulk of his time during these uh, 14 or so months, he is giving one-on-one instruction to the twelve. He's teaching them. He's showing them. He's using different settings they walk through, they experience, and he's giving them lessons. Well, one of the lessons that he gives them is this discussion in Matthew 16. He asks them, whom do men say that I am? And remember how they respond. Some say that you're Elijah, you're this, you're that. And Jesus follows it up and says, but whom do you say that I am? So he wants to make sure that they are, they've got their doctrine right because he's going to be leaving them in, within the next year. So in this training time, he says, who do you say that I am? What's the response? Peter speaks for the 12. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' response to him is, whoa, Peter, great answer. Great answer. And he commends Peter. And he commends and he talks about hey, And then it says, watch where we go from there. Verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. Now notice a couple words here. Jesus said, I must do this. I don't have a choice. And Jesus is making it clear, I'm going to, end to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not a safe place for Jesus. They have a warrant for his arrest. But I've got to go to Jerusalem. Why does he got to go to Jerusalem? Because it's the only place he can offer a legitimate sacrifice himself. It's the place that God has chosen. I must go to Jerusalem. And when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer many things at the hands of the rulers. He's making it very clear, this is not going to be easy. What God has planned for me is something really hard. And I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be killed, be slain at the hands of others. And then he gives the positive, I'm going to rise the third day. But what did the disciples hear? I mean, seriously, what do we hear when we get it, if we got a message like this? Would we hear the positive or would we hear the difficult part? Yeah. They focus in on the difficult part. Really? You're going to do this? And it's hard for them to swallow. This is really tough for them because this isn't going to be easy for Jesus and they love Jesus. They don't want to see him hurt. I mean, they go out of their way to find food for Jesus. They go out of their way to keep the kids away from Jesus. They they want to protect Jesus. And so their response is, whoa, this is is tough. This is really difficult. By the way, this isn't what we had in mind. You're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. We don't expect the Messiah to come and die and bury. We expect him to rule. So this doesn't quite fit what we expected. But there's another reason why they react strongly and say, "Uh uh-uh. Because it's going to be hard for them because whatever they do to the master, they'll do to the disciples. And so what he's saying not only threatens Jesus, it threatens them. And so what is Peter's response? Remember, Peter's the spokesman. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh, Peter, great news, great news, great news. You you hit it on the nail on the head. And when Jesus says, I'm going to die and I'm going to be in the grave, Peter speaks up again. He's just been commended for his speech. So he speaks what everybody else is thinking. And he says, Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Do you notice any contradictions of words in that sentence? Do any of them strike you? He calls Jesus, but then what does he do? You can't do what you want to do. You're my master, but I'm telling you what to do. You know, it would be funny except for we do the same thing. We come here and we worship and say, you're God. But when we walk out, we tell him what we're doing. And so what happens here is where it says that Peter rebuked him. The word is, he censored strongly. Peter's emotional. And Peter's vehement. He's not just thinking it, he's speaking it. And he's very adamant, no, you can't do this. And we won't go with you. Could be added to it. There's no way, no way. Jesus' response is insightful. Jesus says, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. You're an offense. You savor not the things of God. What's he mean? You're a a stumbling block. Peter, you, you are telling me something that is keeping me from doing the will of God. You're a hindrance to me. You don't have your mind set upon doing the plans of God. You are more focused on what will be comfortable for you and what will help you than what God would have. And so it's very clear in this text. Jesus makes it very clear that Satan was behind the comment of Peter. Satan was involved. That he used another person to try to dissuade Christ from following the hard will. He tries to get Jesus to skip the cross and grab the crown. And so what happens here, it's very similar to what it was stated. And basically, Jesus, you need to find an easier way. Jesus, don't extend or expend yourself. Rather, excuse yourself from serving God in a hard task. That's what's happening in this text. So what happens is really what scares me the most is is not only the attack, but Satan is clever enough at times to use people who are very close to us. People we love. People that we trust. People in our inner circle that can dissuade us from doing the hard tasks that God would have us to do. Challenging. Challenging. God presents you an opportunity for ministry. And you're encouraged to let somebody else do it. God says through somebody, would you help with VBS? Would you help teach kids? Man, it's too hard to prepare those lessons. It takes a lot of my time. Or a number get asked, will you serve as a church officer this year? No, we need a break. Let somebody else do it. Or we ask, will you do a home Bible study? Will you take a Bible study and open up your home and do a Bible study and invite your neighbors in? I'm busy. My days are filled. Between my work and cleaning house and doing the gardening, I just don't have time to serve God that way. Or it comes this way. We preach on Fasting. And the response becomes, well, I'll just pray. I'll add another minute to my day. I'm not going to fast. Or, all of a sudden, we announce prayer meetings. And we're too busy for just one hour, one month, a month. Because our lives are so full. It's too difficult. Have devotions with your kids? Man, that means then I'll have to get off the computer for a while. Besides, that's my spouse's job. Gather together to read the Bible. There's so many other things I I can find to do that are much more fun on Sunday afternoons, evenings, other times of the week. Or, you know, God says you're supposed to be visiting widows, giving them a hand. But we'll, we'll, we'll care for the widows. We'll smile at them on Sundays. And that'll be it. Or God says we're supposed to give a verbal witness. We're to go out and do what Jesus did. Well, you know what? I'll, I'll do this. It's not as offensive if I'm just kind. And if I'm kind and loving, and by the way, we should be, but if I'm kind and loving, hopefully somehow that will become a witness without the word of God but it's easier. Really? Is this what God has called us to? Is this is where the church has become that our first concern is finding the easiest ways to serve God and let others do it? Is that what Jesus would have us to do? I don't think so. Because when sa- when Satan through Peter poses this as an option to Jesus, to find an easier path, what is Jesus' response? Read, read with me the next verses. Get thee behind me, you savor not the things. And Jesus said unto his disciples, verse 24, if any man will come after me, let him what? Deny himself, and take up his, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life, they're going to lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake, they're going to find real life. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. What's Jesus getting at? He never intended for his disciples to take the easy road. He never intended it for us. Deny yourself, take up your cross. That is the will of God. That is the plan of God for every one of us who claims to be born again. In this passage, he expects us to be serving, not sitting. Not retiring from service. Not pawning it off on somebody else. But us serving Him consistently, continually. What do we learn from the text? Jesus doesn't ask you to do anything that He isn't and wasn't willing to do for you. He doesn't ask you to give up some extra time and then not do it Himself. He gave up His life for you and me. He gave His all. He suffered hell for us. And to ask us to serve In capacities of teaching and officers, giving out the gospel, praying, that's too much that he's asked us? Really? Don't we owe him so much more? I learned from this text now is not the time for rewarding ourselves or resting. That's a future event when he comes back. That's when I get my rest. That's when we get our rewards. That's when we can slow down. But that's not now. Now is what we're supposed to be doing, service. But Satan would encourage us to do just the opposite. Find an escape clause. Leave somebody else do it. Let somebody else serve. You've done enough. Find an easier route and path just this time, just this once, focus on yourself. Just focus on yourself. That's not what Christ wants. You know, we started talking about people getting confused at the beginning of the message over a hijack. These people weren't confused. Early one Sunday morning several years ago, 40 passengers and crew members boarded a large jet lighter plane traveling nonstop from Newark to San Francisco on a beautiful morning like this one. The passengers raged, ranged in age from 20 to 79. They were from New Jersey, California, Connecticut, Colorado, Germany, Japan, Minnesota, Maryland, Florida, Hawaii, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, New York. Among them was a federal wildlife biologist, a former bookkeeper, a toy company executive, an abor- arborist, uh, arborist excuse me, a retired bartender, attorneys, college students, a former nurse, a teacher, and even an iron worker who had worked on helping to build the World Trade Center. Forty-five minutes into the flight, at around 9.30 a.m., air traffic controllers received two radio transmissions from this flight, a frantic mayday, mayday, Then they heard sounds of a violent struggle followed by, Get out of here! Air traffic controllers monitoring the flight saw the radar indicate that all of a sudden the airliner plummeted 700 feet over eastern Ohio. They then received this message which they think was intended for the people on the plane but they had hit the wrong button. Then they received the message from one of the four hijackers which broadcasts that they had a bomb on board and everybody better do what they say. The hijackers then turned the jetliner towards Washington, D.C. The crew and passengers were herded into the back of the plane. They used onboard phones and their few personal cell phones to call people on the ground to report their flight had been hijacked. But that's when they learned from loved ones that were on the ground that other flights had also been hijacked that day. And already two jetliners had been crashed into the Twin Towers at the World Trade Center. So with that knowledge, the surviving crew and passengers gathered at the back of the plane and held a vote. Democracy on full display. What are we going to do? They voted right there in that plane that these unarmed civilians, as the commission would later write, unbound by duty, voted to retake the plane. From the 37 calls made by 13 passengers during that time, We now know that they determined they were going to do whatever it took to retake the plane, but they would wait until they were over open countryside to minimize the death and the carnage if they failed. Determined to defeat the evil, they banded together as one. One of them told a family member on the ground, I still have my plastic knife from breakfast. We're going to use that. Others began boiling hot coffee so as to scald the terrorist. Still, another armed himself with a fire extinguisher. One of them left their phone open so those on the other end could hear what was going on. And that's when they heard, Let's Roll. And with that, the heroic 40 fought to overcome the terrorists to defend their country. They rushed down the single 20 inch aisle into the first class cabin, carrying out what the commission's report called a sustained assault against the terrorist, the one who was on guard just outside the cockpit. One of the plane's data recorders captured loud thumps, crashes, shouts, breaking glasses and plates. Many think the passengers were using the serving carts as a battering ram to break into the cockpit. The hijacker flying the plane as if to throw the, ass- the assaulters off balance began to rock the airplane from left to right, uh, according to one of the flights, uh, the airline, Air Force jets nearby. One hijacker then was heard to say, Shall we finish them off? Another said, Wait. A passenger all of a sudden shouted, We're in the cockpit. In the cockpit. If we don't, we die. The hijacker soon asked again, Shall we put this plane down? This time the answer was yes. The 9-11 commission concluded that the hijackers judged that the passengers were seconds from overcoming them. The plane roared low across Pastoral Somerset County in Pennsylvania, skimming the village of Lambertsville. The airplane flipped, then crashed at nearly 600 miles per hour near Shanksville. People miles away felt the ground shake. Lieutenant Heather Lucky Penny, an F-16 pilot who had been ordered airborne so as to shoot down Flight 93, later said, the real heroes are the passengers on Flight 93 who were willing to sacrifice themselves. They made the decision that we didn't have to make. The authors of the Commissioner's report highlighted the passenger selflessness with these comments. Their actions saved the lives of countless others and may have saved either the Capitol or the White House from destruction. The report then reached this astonishing conclusion. The defense of U.S. airspace on 9-11 was improvised by civilians who were willing to serve country and others. They were ordinary people from all walks of life who became heroes for a just cause. Today I'm speaking to ordinary people. I'm not calling for you to dedicate your life for a cause of country and America, but for a greater cause, the cause of Jesus Christ. Will you be willing to stand against our spiritual enemy and make whatever sacrifice it takes to serve Christ and others, even if it is hard to do. Father, I pray that this would be taken to heart. I pray that we would reevaluate our so called dedication. I pray that you would help us to examine our hearts and lives and to see who we're listening to. Help us, Lord. Help us to be committed to you, not to self. Committed to country, that's good. But committed to you is far better. Help us, Father, to be individuals and people who would be fully dedicated to Jesus Christ willing to serve even in hard tasks help us Father we pray together this song